Well, I'd like to offer my own greeting this morning. Good morning. Um, I had a good week. A friend of ours invited Ari and I out to their cottage for the last three days of the week. So it was a great place to be able to focus and um, meditate and uh, work on this morning's sermon just out by Lake of the Woods and spent some time with Ari as well. Uh, Michelle was in Toronto this past week, and she was spending some time with Ellie, helping her get set up. Well, really, I mean, Ellie is very set up already, but it was a good excuse to spend some time with a delightful young lady for Michelle, and, um, and she's looking forward, to, Ellie is looking forward to school starting soon. I'll be reading this morning our sermon scripture, um, and it would be good if you took the Pew Bible in front of you and turned to page 1140. That's where the passage that we will be studying this morning is found, page 1140 in your Pew Bibles. But I will be reading it this morning from the New American Standard Version. So as I'm reading the scripture, you may want to direct your attention to the screens in front of you because that's where that version will be projected. Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord, I need you. Lord, we all need you. You are our one defense. You are our righteousness. We need you. Open our eyes. Open our ears. Open our hearts. Open my lips to show forth your praise. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, I want to begin this morning by starting with a confession. 
And that confession, especially in regards to this famous passage, is somewhat scandalous. And my confession is that I often feel skeptical when people talk about joy. It's not that I don't believe in joy, of course, but I know that true joy is rare. And it's rare because it is a miracle. And I mean that literally. Joy is literally a miracle. It's a gift from God that no human can you manufacture. So when someone mentions joy, I want to see that they know what they're talking about. I want evidence that the person telling me about something so unlikely knows that it is a miracle and not something that can be worked up. Another confession. I often feel especially skeptical when pastors like me preach about joy. Because over the last century, the church has often treated joy as if it can be manufactured. We've talked about Christian joy as if it were the same as optimism. As if our job as Christians is to sell Christianity on a tight market of ideas. As if the lack of a smile could be seen as failure to provide good customer service. But while there's nothing wrong with optimism, it's not joy. And though in our culture, an optimistic outlook might seem to us to be the best or the most successful outlook, it's not always the most honest outlook. Nor is it the most biblical, especially considering that the Bible spends a lot more time warning us than it does encouraging us. That's one of the reasons why people have trouble reading the Bible, isn't it? God inspired the men who wrote the Bible to use far more of that precious papyrus accentuating the negative and affirming than affirming the positive. The book of Ecclesiastes says it straight up that sorrow is better than laughter. It calls the laughter of a fool futile and compares it to the crackle of thorn bushes on a blazing hearth fire. It also reminds us that adversity, as well as prosperity, are both from God. And why? So that we will feel uncertain about the future. According to Ecclesiastes, when all's said and done, sorrow is better than laughter because when a face is sad, a heart may be happy. So it would seem that the Bible itself affirms that life is hard and that joy is hard to come by. God does not want us to play pretend. He doesn't want us to just make believe that everything in our lives is okay when it's not. But 
how can Paul say what he does in Philippians 4, verse 4, in light of what much of the Bible says? Really, he says he he commands us even to rejoice. And not only to rejoice, but to rejoice always. And he doesn't only say it once, does he? He doubles down. Again, I will say, rejoice. And he doesn't just double down. Here he's repeating word for word what he said just one chapter earlier. And not only is he repeating himself, these two commands to rejoice in our verse are the twelfth and the thirteenth times out of the fourteen times Paul uses the words rejoice or joy in this tiny little letter. Clearly, Paul intends for us to be joyful. Clearly, God intends for us to be joyful. So what is this joy that we're being called to? Some people would have us believe that maybe joy isn't what it seems to be. Maybe we can be more joyful simply by redefining what we mean by the word. But is Paul just recommending here that we adopt a sort of detached benevolence toward the world? Or the kind of fruit of gratefulness that we try and muster up during the holidays? Or is he saying that we should cultivate a stoic contentment? Don't expect too much, and you won't be disappointed. Clearly not. Clearly not. Most of the time when Paul uses the words joy or rejoice, he is displaying how he feels about the people in this church at Philippi. And they're clearly his favorites. He wears his heart on his sleeve. He's utterly unashamed to express to them in a flood of emotion how he feels. He starts by telling them that every time he remembers them, he's inspired to pray joy-filled prayers. In the passage we just read, he calls them his beloved twice. Those he longs to see his joy and crown. He relishes the joy that he knows they will feel when he sends back one of their own to them after he almost died. Indeed, he rejoices to know that they sent Epaphroditus to him in the first place because they were so concerned about Paul languishing in prison. This is joy. This is joy that is deep, visceral, and uncontainable. This is joy that is spontaneous, extravagant, and infectious. It is truly a prodigal joy. Now, because of the parable that we call the prodigal son, most people think that prodigal must have something to do with turning away or or maybe with repentance and forgiveness, but prodigal refers to reckless extravagance, to imprudent wastefulness. That's what prodigal means. And that 
is the kind of joy that Paul is commanding us not to fake, but to cultivate. Not to manufacture, but to pursue. If you still had any illusions that Paul is telling us to do something that we can achieve on our own steam, I hope that this definition of joy puts those to rest. Any feeling that we can conjure on our own, whether it's benign contentment or detached benevolence or unflappable indifference, is not the thing that Paul is talking about. As the great Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones put it, people who hide behind indifference do not have any joy. Joy is active and emotional. Joy does not curb us. There's power and life in it. It is a spirit of exultation. Rejoice. That is surely active and positive. But even farther off the mark is to force behavior that doesn't reflect how you feel. Paul's not commanding us to be insincere. This is not about being a religious super salesman. He does not want us to be fake or to work up an obnoxious and obviously false cheerfulness. Sometimes that's exactly what we feel we must do to to try and take this command seriously, isn't it? We don't feel particularly joyful, yet we're commanded to rejoice, so I'll just start by pretending with a desperate hope that maybe maybe it'll become authentic. Maybe eventually I'll feel joyful. We often tell ourselves and each other in all kinds of life, all paths of life, just you just have to fake it till you make it. Right? Well, while that strategy might make you a more pleasant person to be around if you're kind of cranky, generally, it will not produce real joy. So it's not what Paul is talking about here. Now, it should be obvious, but it's worth emphasizing then that fake it till you make it is not the same as rejoice in the Lord always. So if the kinds of genuine positive feelings that we're able to produce on our own are not joy, and a show of frantic positivity is not joy, how can we consciously and conscientiously obey the clear command that we find here in Scripture? We are told that we must rejoice. But is it possible? Can we truly rejoice? Yes. Because joy is not something you put out or something you put on. Joy is someone you pursue. Joy is not something you put out or put on. He is someone that you pursue, who you pursue. The command is not simply to rejoice generically. It's not some moralistic crack of the whip to just chin up and be happy. The command is to rejoice in the Lord. 
And Paul seems to recognize how unlikely it is that this command will be understood, let alone embraced. He hears how ridiculous such a command sounds, given what the Philippians were going through. Obviously he does, because he immediately repeats himself. Rejoice in the Lord always. No, really, I really do mean it. So I will say it again. Rejoice. As we saw earlier, Paul overflows with spontaneous joy as he thinks about the people that he feels genuine affection for. Now, we all do this, don't we? When you think about someone that you really love, some, someone that you're in love with, you don't have to work up a sense of joy. So this is the secret to Paul's never-ending joy, that he is most strongly attached to his Lord Jesus Christ. His joy is always deep, always genuine, because his love for Christ is so deep and so genuine. He is able to rejoice in the Lord always because the Lord is always with him. And Paul is always thinking on him. But throughout this letter, Paul also drops many strong hints that he knew that all was not well in the church at Philippi. Some situation was weighing them down that was on top of the poverty and the persecution that they always had to deal with. Just before that command to rejoice, Paul finally brings it out into the open, naming the two prominent women at the center of the conflict. Now, we'd love to know more about Euodia and Syntyche. Who did and said what to whom? Who was at fault? Who needed to humble themselves and admit that they were wrong? Now, knowing Paul, he must have informed himself as best he could about all these things. But he doesn't mention anything specific about the situation other than these names. In fact, it seems as if he steadfastly refuses to go into any detail about it, simply admonishing and trusting his true companion, the leader there, presumably, to help them. Help them. Help these women. It seems that the thing that really mattered to Paul about these two women was not their dispute. Was not who was right and who was wrong. Not in airing all the dirty laundry. But that they shared his struggle in the cause of the gospel. That is what he chose to remember about these women and to highlight about these women. He knew them. He knew them well. He knew their strengths and he knew their weaknesses, but most of all, he knew their common commitment to the gospel. Knew that their names were written in the book of life. And it was on that basis and only on that basis that he could even hope that they would once again be of the same mind. 
Now, I think it's important that we make this distinction between being of the same mind, which is what the text literally says. And here, if you have a new NIV in front of you, you'll see that actually the new NIV gets this the best. Because the text literally says that they urges them to be of the same mind. So, but we should make this distinction between being of the same mind and agreeing with each other, which is what the old NIV has, and something similar is what we have in the NAS, uh, living in harmony with one another. And in many other English versions, we have something similar to that. But being of the same mind is the right idea, is the true translation. This idea of agreement is not very helpful, I think. Because what we mean by agreement, usually, is that the parties involved in the dispute have been prevailed upon to change their minds, either to realize that they've been wrong or to hammer out some kind of compromise. I don't think that's what Paul had in mind for these women. If one was clearly right or wrong, Paul would not have hesitated to weigh in. He was certainly not known to hold back when he had a strong opinion. Even when there were no clear biblical guidelines, and even when he himself had not heard a direct word from God about it. You can check that out in 1 Corinthians 7. Paul did not hold back his opinions easily. But in this case, whatever the dispute was about, the divide was serious enough to trouble the whole church. And it had been going on long enough that it was unlikely that either of these women would change their minds. If there was a simple judgment that he could make, he would surely have shared it in this letter. But he didn't. So obviously there wasn't. Still, he knew that reconciliation was possible. He was so confident about this, in fact, that his strategy was to write a general letter to the whole church and gradually work his way, finally, to naming the parties in the dispute and then handing the matter off to someone else. As I say... The way that we tend to approach disagreement is to attack the disagreement itself. When we do that, either one side wins, which, as we all know, rarely happens, or each side gives something up, and though nobody wins exactly, everybody can go away feeling like, "Eh, I achieved something for my side until the next dispute happens, and then I'll try and gain a little bit more ground. That's bargaining 101, right? But that's not the approach that Paul urges. Instead, he pleads. He pleads to Euodia. He pleads to Syntyche that they would have or be of the same mind. In this approach... When the dispute is between Christians, and especially when there's no clear right or wrong, what the disagreement is about, though it may be very important, is automatically a secondary issue. What needs to be addressed is the broken relationship. 
The breach in the body of Christ. The breaking of fellowship. The splitting apart of what was once the same mind. On the other hand, when everyone's position is a matter of conscience, Paul tells us in Romans 14 that for anyone to compromise is actually sinful. As he says, it is possible for a person to condemn himself by what he approves. Romans 14.22 In other words, you can be damaged by the compromises that you're willing to make. It's a hard one to wrap your mind around, and I'd encourage you to read Romans 14 later on and think about that for a while. But from that chapter and from many other places, we can confidently say that Paul didn't and the Bible doesn't expect all Christians to agree about everything. But Paul obviously does expect, and the Bible clearly demands, that Christians be of the same mind. But it's not the mind of one or the other parties to the dispute. The mind we are to share is the very mind of Christ. This is why Paul introduces the matter of the dispute in verse 1 by telling the Philippians that they must in this way stand firm in the Lord. That is to say, we stand or fall based on how well we stand in the Lord Jesus. And he was gently warning them that they were now in danger of falling because they were not of the same mind. They had allowed the details of their dispute to stand in the way of the sharing of the mind of Christ. So the solution that he commands, the help that he requests, the reconciliation that he urges between these two dear partners in the gospel starts with rejoicing. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say... Rejoice. One obvious aspect of this command to rejoice that we haven't addressed yet is that it is simply a call for the people of God to worship together. And this is probably one of the hardest things to do when you feel at odds with another Christian. However, no matter how hard you may find it, clearly Paul's expectation, truly God's own command, is that you praise the Lord together with the people of God. Whatever else rejoice in the Lord may mean, it is not an instruction for you to put some headphones in your ears and have your own private jam with Jesus. To cloister yourself in a closet of prayer and devotion, as good as those things are. Rejoice is plural. In other words, whatever our beefs, whatever we've experienced, we're called to worship together. 
to sit, to stand, to sing alongside those who we may find it exceedingly difficult to be around. Paul insisted on this even from his place of enforced semi-isolation. Remember, where did Paul write this letter from? He's sitting in prison. Remember how his circumstances prevented him from leading the church in the way that he would prefer. Remember that in the first chapter he told them about selfish preachers whose motivation to preach was envy and strife. Whose sole intention in preaching Christ was to cause Paul distress in his imprisonment. Still, he insists that what matters most of all is that Christ is proclaimed. He accepts his circumstances as being from the hand of God himself, and given that fact, it doesn't matter to him whether even the preaching of Christ is in pretense or in truth. In this, he says, I will rejoice. This is astonishing. And he certainly expects it to astonish the Philippians, since he emphasizes there in that first chapter as well, just as in our passage, in this I will rejoice. Yes, believe it or not, I will rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. That's the first part of Paul's plan of reconciliation. But Paul doesn't stop there. And though this first command is impossible apart from Christ, obeying the next one is even harder. And it might not appear that way to you since in the New American Standard Version, verse 5 is just, let your gentle spirit be known to all men. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. No problem, we think. A gentle spirit, that's something I can handle. But the first clue that something is a little tricky here is that this sentence is kind of confusing, seeing as it is a little disjointed from what came before it, a little off-topic from rejoicing. And the next clue comes if that curiosity leads you to investigate and you discover that the word that we have here as gentle spirit is translated in all kinds of different ways. Our pew Bible has it similarly. Let your gentleness be evident to all. Let your gentleness be evident to all. But the ESV has it as reasonableness. And the King James as moderation. Others have it as humility. Still others as modesty or forbearance or being considerate or kind or gracious or even magnanimous. And each one of these variations is valid. Because of that, if you limit yourself to only one of them, you won't fully understand what Paul is commanding us to do, or really how he is commanding us to be. The Greek word here is epiakes, and obviously there's a lot in it. Truly, it's more than a word. It's a whole idea, a way of being, obviously a selfless way of being. In particular, it's a selfless way of being when you're facing opposition. Epiakis or epiakia was a concept that was well known to Paul and his readers. Paul's use of it would have instantly conjured up an image for them because it was talked a lot about in the ancient world. Epiakis. 
For instance, one contemporary of Paul used Epiacus to describe the great Athenian statesman Pericles, who is admired for the reasonableness and gentleness, Epiacus, which he maintained in the midst of many responsibilities and great enmities, hatreds. Pericles apparently never gratified his envy or his passion in the exercise of his vast power. Nor did he treat any one of his foes as incurable. A couple hundred years earlier than um, Plutarch on Pericles, it was said that Epiacus was necessary to be a great historian. Epiacus is necessary to be a great historian because in order to accurately reflect the truths of history, there will be many occasions on which the historian will be bound to speak well of his enemies and even to praise them in the highest terms if the facts demand it. And on the other hand, many occasions on which it will be his duty to criticize and denounce his own side. One must not shrink either from blaming one's friends or praising one's enemies, nor be afraid of finding fault with and commending the same persons at different times. For it is impossible that men engaged in public affairs should always be right, and unlikely that they should always be wrong, but possible. And going back even further, Aristotle weighed the concept of epiaca as it relates to justice. And here we find the word translated as equity, equity. Justice and equity, or epikeia, Aristotle says, are neither absolutely identical or generically different. For equity, epikeia, while superior to one one sort of justice, is itself just. Justice and equity are therefore the same thing, and both are good, though equity is the better. And from this, it is clear what the equitable man is. Epiacus. He is one who, by choice and habit, does not stand on his rights unduly, but is content to receive a smaller share, although he has the law on his side. Epiacus. Now, Paul certainly would have been familiar with Aristotle and with ethical discussions of this sort. But ancient Jewish devotional literature also used this word. In the first example up there, we see that the wicked are taunting the righteous, and they suggest that insults and torture are a means of seeing just how epiacus he really is. Is he really gentle? We'll see when we put him through the rack. And in the second example, epiachia is described as an attribute of God himself. You're sovereign in strength, but you judge with mildness, epiachia. So it's not surprising that Peter, James, and Paul all also use this word. For James, epiacus is one aspect of the wisdom that comes from heaven. 
And in 2 Corinthians 10, where Paul is warning the Corinthian church to turn from their arrogance, he uses this word to describe the essential character of Jesus himself by the meekness and gentleness, epiakis, of Christ, I appeal to you. And he identifies this very forceful appeal with Jesus' own gentleness, Jesus' own selflessness. So it should now be really clear why Paul would say in Philippians 4, verse 5, let your epiakis be known to all men. Your reasonableness, your modesty, your gentleness. This word, this concept is something that Jesus himself embodies in all its fullness. It is what he alone can give. It is no less supernatural than true joy is. To be of the same mind, as Paul urges Euodia and Syntyche, is essential. And it is impossible without Jesus. Both of the means that Paul suggests here to achieve that unity of mind can only come in an authentic way, in a full way, through Jesus himself, by his Spirit. Christians can indeed disagree without sinning, without their disagreements tearing apart the church but only if they're filled with the joy of Jesus. Only if they're as selfless as Jesus. Only if they have the mind of Jesus. And so we come to the final phrase of verse 5, and it's both a stirring encouragement and a sober warning. The Lord is near. Literally, the Lord is at hand. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted, yes. And as we will hear next week, he is eager to hear from us and to answer our anxious prayers, but he is also near, close at hand, as judge. Seen in this light, there's an urgency to what Paul is commanding. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice is not an exhortation to keep things light and airy. Let your gentle spirit be known to all your epiakis, your sweet reasonableness, your kindness, your selflessness. Let it be obvious to all because that all includes the Lord, the judge who sees all that you do who hears all that you say, who knows all that you think, who suffers from the malice that you harbor in your own heart. There's the stick. And here's the carrot. Joy is here. Greatness of heart is here. To worship in the moment that 
fellowship feels like it's breaking is not only possible, it produces in us Jesus' own sweet selflessness. From time to time, time to time, you hear someone cynically say that one must never let a good crisis go to waste. And the tender suggestion of this passage is that that is quite right. That rejoicing and gentleness can be found in the very teeth of conflict. Here is the incentive to stick things out together. Conflicts shove us into situations we never wanted or asked for. But they also offer repeated opportunities to keep on letting go of our own interests. To keep on seeking the mind of Christ together with the very people with whom we're having the most trouble. And when we do this, united in the Lord, prodigal joy unexpectedly precipitates, trickles down. At times when we feel we'd rather stay angry, it's even unwanted. It is a prodigal joy, wasting our righteous indignation. If we're not careful, wasting it away, evaporating it, distilling it into a dew that trembles with a stronger truth than whatever is fueling our disagreement. We can drink it deeply together or let it slip through our fingers apart. When we can see conflict as simply an opportunity for God to work in us, through our fellowship, when we do this committing to stand shoulder to shoulder, standing firm in the Lord, standing firm in one spirit, with one soul striving together for the faith of the gospel, being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united intent on one purpose, this vulnerable great-heartedness, this ipiacus, always content to receive less than its share, rises with joy rather than with dread to see the Lord standing at the door, knocking. Now, if you always think of that reference from Revelation 3 as an invitation to those who do not yet know Christ, I suggest you read it again. It is a rebuke to a church that won't admit to its precarious position. Like that church, we are used to thinking of ourselves as greatly blessed. But again, in the spirit of not letting a good crisis go to waste, times of conflict ought to provoke hard questions in each of us, in me, First of all, rejoice in the Lord always. How much of this joy in Jesus that Paul is talking about do I seek? How much of it do I know? 
Or when was the last time I really let go on a Sunday morning alongside people who make me feel uncomfortable? Let your gentle spirit be known to all? Can I even detect any greatness of heart in myself? Let alone, can others see it? And even if so, is any of my self-diagnosed magnanimity on display when I'm around someone who bothers me and I think they ought to know about it? Be of the same mind in the Lord. How much faith do I really have that Jesus can and will unite my mind together with the minds of the rest of his people with all our differences inside of his own mind? And if I'm completely honest, how much do I even want to be stuck with them? And as I ask myself these questions, as I felt led to write them, I know that despite my best efforts, despite my sincere desire to be selfless in the midst of conflict, I need the stick as much as I need the carrot. I need the judge to goad me to rejoice in him, whatever my circumstances. I need him to humble me because I am so quick to try and display the superiority of my position. I need him to increase my appetite for true union with my brothers and sisters in him, to be of the same mind, to have the mind of Christ together, rather than to insist on my thoughts being distinctive and dominating. This hurts. Joy hurts. At the beginning of our time together, I talked about my skepticism when others speak lightly of joy. And this is the reason. True joy, prodigal joy, joy in the Lord usually comes in weakness often accompanied by pain. It takes loss to gain the mind of Christ. A loss of self-possession. A loss of self-righteousness. It can seem like wasted effort since joy is a miracle that you can savor, but you can't hold on to. First Peter 4.13 says, Rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again and again and again as long as I need to hear it. Rejoice. It is worth it. It is the only thing that is. 
The Lord is near. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, that your grace is sufficient and that your power is made perfect in our weakness. Amen. Thank you for joining us this morning. I hope that you'll stay with us and enjoy some food afterwards. Our benediction this morning is found, also found in the book of 1 Peter, chapter 1, verses 3 to 9. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly Rejoice. Even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Let's pray together. Oh, how sweet and divine your love is. Help us to savor it and to share it this week, starting right now. And as we go back to school and to work, let us remember, Lord, your joy. The joy that we have because of your Son, Jesus. And it's in his name we ask this. Amen.